From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Democratic Representative Jason Crow of Colorado will be an impeachment manager, which means he'll help present the House's case against the president and the Senate. We'll get his perspective on the upcoming trial. Then, high-deductible health insurance plans are increasingly common, and they're hurting rural patients and hospitals. What the issue looks like in Colorado. Also, Governor Polis is championing a public health option, and analysts are taking note. Big things are going to happen, and you're seeing those happening in Colorado right now, probably more so than most other states. But there's a big effort to fight what the governor wants to do. We'll look at who's leading that charge. And the reasons a Durango school district is now considering a ban on cell phones in its middle schools. Plus, a big award for a Colorado author. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. This morning, Congressman Jason Crow, a freshman representative from Colorado's 6th District, joined six other House impeachment managers in the Senate in reading the two articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump. The subsequent trial is expected to begin next week. Representative Crow joined us from Washington, D.C. before the presentation in the Senate. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Hi, good morning. There have been only two presidential impeachment trials in the almost 244-year history of the United States. You're about to become an integral part of the third. What are your thoughts right now? Well, it's a very uh, grave and and somber responsibility. You know, I don't uh, talk to many people who uh, like the fact that we're in this position and doing this. This is certainly not uh, what we all came to Congress to do, but the president has left us with no choice. You know, we have to uphold the Constitution and our system of checks and balances, and uh, the the abuse of power that uh, this president uh, conducted uh, can't can't go uh, left unchecked. Now, the Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts will be sworn in after the articles are read. He will then swear in the 100 senators as jurors in the trial. Tell me about your role, what it will be in the proceedings, both today and next week, and how the duties will be divided amongst the seven of you. Well, uh, you were you were right, Avery. That uh, very shortly here we will read the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Uh, the senators will be sworn in. They will take an oath to be impartial jurors. So all hundred of them uh, sit during the trial and listen to all the evidence and the arguments presented by both sides. And they have to do that in an impartial way, in a non-political way. Uh, and then on Tuesday uh, after uh, the the holiday weekend, the trial will, will begin. Uh, and the the seven managers essentially serve as prosecutors. We present the. House's case, uh, the evidence and the facts. Uh, we, we will be arguing uh, for witnesses and additional evidence. And I think, uh, you know, our initial uh, uh, responsibility and task here is to ensure that the trial is fair, uh, that witnesses and, and evidence and documents are admitted so that both uh, the senators and the American people can have a full picture of all the facts here. And do you have an idea how the duties are going to be divided amongst the seven managers? Well, I'm not going to talk about trial strategy here. I mean, the, the managers are, are meeting on a, a regular basis and, and discussing uh, our approach to things. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to go into what that strategy is going to be at this point. And like you said, the managers, they are like prosecutors. I understand that part of the reason you were chosen is you're an attorney. You got your law degree from the University of Denver. And I want to talk with you about the law. There is a story that when you served in Afghanistan during rocket attacks, your platoon would have to wait it out in bunkers. During those times, the story goes, you would study for the LSAT, the law school admission test. I guess that's one way of keeping your mind off of the dangers. But what was it about the law that made it clearly so important to you? 
Uh, Avery, that, that story is true. And, and actually, after studying for the LSAT uh, under rocket attack in Afghanistan, it wasn't that hard actually taking the LSAT <laughs> a couple of months later uh, in a classroom. So it was a, a good way to prepare, actually, and, and kind of pass the time uh, during those attacks. But, you know, uh, one constant throughout my service to the country, both in the military and, and uh, as a lawyer, is uh, the the oath uh, that I had to take. You know, I've taken many oaths throughout my life, starting when I was a teenager, to uphold and defend the Constitution. You know, I've served in places where there is no rule of law, uh, where there are no checks and balances, uh, and it's not a, a great environment to be in. You know, uh, we have an amazing country. I, I love America deeply for what it represents. Our democracy is a beautiful thing, uh, and we have to fight for it to preserve it. So that, that's a constant throughout my life is kind of my commitment to that. That, uh, that idea, commitment to the Constitution, and I'm going to continue that forward. So given that relationship with the law, what do you make of the idea that the outcome of the impeachment trial seems fixed? The Senate's controlled by Republicans and the Senate Majority Leader and Mitch McConnell has already said the outcome of the trial has already been determined in favor of President Trump. Why does the law matter in such an environment? Well, I hope that's not true. You know, I, everybody has to take an oath today, and I will reiterate to every member of the Senate that they have to fulfill that oath. Uh, they will be sworn in by the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, and they have an obligation to fulfill the oath that they're about to take. Uh, and if someone decides that they're not going to abide by their oath, that doesn't discharge me from fulfilling mine. Uh, I've taken an oath. I I intend to fulfill it and to do so uh, with diligence and with seriousness and with dignity. Uh, And people can count on that. So at the end of the day, uh, it's important that uh, the jurors do what they have to do. The American people will see evidence. Uh, They will have to make a decision uh, about how they view that evidence and and the facts as well. Uh, And at the end of the day, there there will be accountability uh, for the United States Senate, uh, regardless of how they vote. Of course, there is still some question about the role witnesses will play in the trial. But I also wonder about the information earlier this week. There was the release of documents and text messages that could indicate a link between the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and the efforts to get the Ukrainian president to announce investigations related to former Vice President Joe Biden. And I'm not necessarily asking you to address that specifically, but I'm wondering how the trial will address any revelations that may emerge outside of what's taking place in the Senate. What does that process of entering information look like? Yeah, so this is a trial, but uh, unlike uh, other trials, the evidence continues to emerge uh, and will uh, be dealt with uh, in due course. So we're continuing to go through the Parnas documents uh, as uh, as managers. We're reviewing that information. You know, there's a lot of information to review. New stuff continues to come out, uh, you know, on a daily basis, and and all of this underscores the need to actually have documents and evidence. This cannot be the first impeachment trial in the history of the country where there aren't any documents and there uh, aren't any witnesses. Uh, Every every, uh, prior trial has had both. Uh, and, and this trial needs to have both, too. Uh, you know, there is overwhelming evidence of the president's abuse of power here and, and, and the way that he jeopardized national security. Uh, but uh, this, uh, you know, even with that overwhelming evidence, we don't have the full picture. And it's really important that we have the full picture so that we understand what happened and what needs to be done to fix it uh, as well. 
You were one of seven freshman representatives with military backgrounds who wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post last September. Speaker Pelosi has said that was a major factor in her decision to conduct the impeachment hearings in the House. In fact, she announced the process would move forward the very next day. Some say that makes you vulnerable in the next election. I want to read you part of a tweet from Christy Burton-Brown. She's the vice chairman of the Colorado GOP. She said, Jason Crow is siding with the extreme wing of his party by taking on the job of impeachment manager. The moderate voters in CD6 won't look kindly on yet another distraction from the issues Crow should be focused on. What's your reaction to that notion? Well, facts still matter, and the facts are that uh, you know Donald Trump uh, has, has you know done a lot of things that uh, Colorado has repeatedly and very vehemently rejected. You know, I spend a lot of my time. Uh, back home in the district, meeting with families, with with children, with victims of gun violence, with our immigrants and refugees, with people who have been substantially impacted by this administration. Uh, And, um, you know, that matters. People see that. And what matters even more is people in Colorado and throughout the country recognize when somebody puts politics aside and does the right thing. And when they uh, fulfill their oath and when they're guided by their oath of office and their patriotism to this country and their commitment to their community, ultimately that is what people are looking for. And, and that's what I'm going to continue to do. So I, I'm very confident in the fact that uh, you know, I've continued to deliver uh, on the kitchen table issues and, and uh, the things that are important to Coloradans. And one of those things that are important to Coloradans is good government and that we don't allow corruption, that we don't allow abuse of power, uh, and that we preserve our checks and balances. I think that's something that that everybody has an interest in. Have you talked with Corey Gardner about the upcoming trial? I have not. Um, and do you have plans to? You know, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you know I'm going to approach this very holistically. All 100 senators uh, have to uh, uh, sit in judgment here. Uh, I think it's important that as, as prosecutors, we look at the entire Senate and not individual senators. One area that's certainly of interest to Coloradans that may have been overlooked with all the impeachment news, on Wednesday, the U.S. and China signed a trade deal that supposedly represents a ceasefire in the ongoing two-year battle between the two nations. The tariffs that have affected Colorado in areas from farming to manufacturing will reportedly be left to later negotiations, but the White House is calling this agreement a victory. This comes on the heels of another agreement signed last month between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, What are your thoughts about the two measures and their possible impacts on Colorado? Well, there are some things that I like about it and some things that I don't. I mean, certainly there there are going to be some purchases, and it does put China in the position and and, uh, puts the responsibility on them to purchase some goods, uh, some farming products and uh, liquid natural gas and some other things that will be helpful. Uh, but I still have a lot of concerns. You know, farmers in, in Colorado and throughout the country, they don't want to bail out. They don't want to be uh, propped up. They just want a fair playing field. So I think we need to continue to fight and make sure that there is a fair playing field. You know, this initial deal doesn't address at all one of the fundamental uh, challenges with our relationship with China, and that is that, that China Uh, their government props up their private industry, which makes it really hard for our companies and our farmers to compete uh, when there's an artificial propping up uh, of their their companies. And it doesn't address that issue at all. Uh, And there are still uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of tariffs that will remain on the book Uh, books that uh, American consumers and companies will continue to have to pay for. So there's a lot that still has to be done, and I'm going to continue to encourage the administration to work hard to make sure that we address uh, all of those issues, including the really fundamental structural issues that have to be fixed uh, regarding our relationship with China. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you.
Jason Crow represents Colorado's 6th District. On Wednesday, he was named one of the seven impeachment managers who will make the House of Representatives case in the trial of President Trump. That's expected to begin next week. When people choose health insurance, frequently they're most concerned about what that will cost them per month. But low monthly payments can mean high deductibles. So if someone ends up in the hospital, they might have to pay thousands of dollars before their insurance even kicks in. In rural America, the consequences of those plans are especially steep. Markian Harlock recently reported on what that looks like in Colorado for Kaiser Health News. Hi, Markian. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me. And to understand what's at stake in this story, first we have to get a picture of healthcare in rural Colorado, especially when someone gets really sick. There's a woman named Christy Flowers in your story. Tell me about her. Yeah, Christy Flowers is actually a registered nurse, and she works in a hospital, so so she knows these things uh, pretty intimately. Uh, but she had been sick for, for four or five days and finally said, gosh, I, I, I'm just not getting better. I need to go to the emergency room. And uh, when she got to the emergency room, the doctors had found that one of her lungs was filled with fluid. She was uh, suffering from pneumonia, and she needed some pretty serious uh, health care, more than that local hospital could uh, could provide. Uh, and those smaller hospitals are often, their charge is to take a patient like Ms. Flowers and uh, and stabilize her, get her to, uh, to a larger hospital that does have the capacity to care for her and her acuity of care. So they ended up transferring her to a hospital in Colorado Springs. And after a while, she got sent back to, to the smaller hospital in her community uh, and, uh, you know, recovered very nicely. And then the bills came, and uh, uh, Ms. Flores had a uh, high deductible plan. So after insurance paid their portion, she was still on the hook for nearly $8,000 of uh, all sorts of medical care between the two hospitals and the doctors that cared for her. She ended up having to take out a loan to pay that off. But in many cases, uh, the people aren't in a position like Ms. Flowers can't afford to do that. And uh, they simply don't pay the bill to that local hospital. And it's important that she went to multiple providers, a rural hospital in the Eastern Plains and then that larger hospital in Colorado Springs. Now, Ms. Flowers was actually able to pay her bills, but if she hadn't been able to, which hospital is least likely to get paid by insurance? Yeah, it's the first one because uh, generally the way uh, the bills are processed, when the hospitals submit their bills, the, f- the first one that's submitted uh, goes towards the patient's deductible. And once the patient's deductible is met, then uh, the insurance kicks in and starts paying is paying the remainder. Uh, so in this case, the rural hospital had submitted their bill, and most of what they had submitted was applied to the patient's deductible. So uh, in Ms. Flowers' case, if she hadn't been able to pay that, that hospital would have been out that money. So let's back up. Briefly, what is a high-deductible health insurance plan? Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of different ways that insurance plans can dis- can uh, devise the uh, the way payments are made under under health insurance. And basically, what they're they're very good at at figuring out what the average cost they're going to incur for for all the patients that have their health insurance. And so they can either charge a high monthly premium to cover those costs, or what they can do is lower the monthly premium but raise the amount of money that the patient's going to have to pay him or herself out of pocket. And what's been popular recently are these sort of high deductible plans, uh, deductibles of three, four, even sometimes even ten thousand uh, dollars, and you 
have to pay all that before the insurance will pay a single dollar. And why are more people choosing those now, especially in rural areas than in the past? Yeah. Mostly it's about affordability of health care insurance. And most people shop for health care insurance looking solely at the cost per month to them. It's like, what am I paying per month to get this bill? Now, some people are pretty savvy about this and they recognize that, you know, hey, I could pay $100 or $200 a month less and gamble that I'll never get sick and never have to pay that high deductible. But other people just kind of don't understand how health insurance works until they get sick and they get these bills and they realize, oh, this might not have been the best plan for me. And I imagine these plans are not new, but they are more popular now. Yeah, they've definitely risen in popularity or, or, you know, I don't know if they're popular as so much as is more common, um, and, and particularly in rural areas where there are, there are few choices and insurance companies may offer, you know, one plan and they're trying to make that monthly premium as low as possible. So many more people are stuck with a high deductible plan. This also happens on the uh, employer-sponsored side um, where companies are looking to uh, limit their liability for healthcare insurance costs. And so they're uh, putting more of a deductible, more of the burden on their employees to pick up that cost. And what does this mean for people's health in terms of sinking preventative care? Yeah, you know, we, we talked to another woman for this story who uh, she had a high deductible plan and, and she didn't really have any health problems, but she was scared to go to the doctor for any reason because she realized everything's going to come out of my pocket. And it was a little bit of, you know, if, if I don't go, they won't find anything and then I won't have to pay anything. But that's a real kind of dangerous gamble. Oftentimes, uh, when you avoid that sort of easy preventive care, uh, a small problem can spiral into a big problem. Now, all of a sudden, you're in crisis. You're going to the emergency room. Maybe you've got an expensive hospitalization. And what could have been taken care of with you know, a simple medication or a simple procedure is now a complex medical issue. And we're finding that this is hurting hospitals as well. And you're reporting you found hospital bad debt, so people not paying their bills, increased from $617 million in 2015 to $56.5 billion in 2018. What does that mean for rural hospitals specifically, and especially rural hospitals in Colorado? Yeah, rural hospitals are generally operating at a pretty slim margin. They don't have a lot of room for error. And uh, in, in other states, we've seen a lot of rural hospital closures. We've, we've avoided that largely in Colorado, uh, mainly because we've expanded Medicaid, and these uh, hospitals aren't seeing a, a lot of uninsured patients. However, uh, we might be reaching a tipping point with these high-deductible plans. Uh, last year, 22 hospitals in rural Colorado were operating in the red. They were losing money. Obviously, that can't continue for a long time. And is that uh, more than normal? Uh, that is an increasing trend in, in Colorado. It may, it may, it may, we may still be better off than a lot of other states in the country, but, uh, but it's, it's a problem for Colorado in particular. Now, we've got about a minute left. What solutions have advocates and lawmakers put forward to deal with the problem? Yeah, mainly that, you know, the, Colorado has been very aggressive, particularly in the past year under the Polis administration, in, in trying to reduce the cost of, of insurance. And part of that is, you know, they have this new proposal for the public option, uh, which they believe will, uh, will, they will lower prices that hospitals have charged. Um, that's, you know, tricky. How is that going to impact different types of hospitals, larger hospitals, maybe in the Denver metro area, making huge profits. They might be able to handle that a little better than rural hospitals. The administration has pledged to sort of use this algorithm or formula where they'll pay hospitals differently depending on their situation. Um, 
But that should lower the cost of, of, of health care for, uh, for consumers. There's also things like the Peak Health Alliance where, uh, you know, up in the mountain region uh, where, where local uh, employers have sort of banded together to get better nego- – to negotiate better rates from hospitals, lower that, that, that cost of care. And then you have things like the reinsurance program, which is just implemented this year, uh, which um, helps the hospital – helps the, the state reduce um, the cost of insurance for consumers. Mark Ian, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Avery. It's a pleasure. Mark Ian Harluck is the senior Colorado correspondent for Kaiser Health News. He recently reported on the effect of high-deductible health plans on patients and hospitals in rural Colorado. Democratic lawmakers are working on a proposal to rewrite the rules for workplace harassment claims. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland explains what they're proposing and why it's raising some concerns. Since the fall of 2017, when the Me Too movement took off, numerous states have passed bills to strengthen workplace protections. Now Democratic Senator Faith Winter of Westminster is hoping Colorado does the same. She was the first to publicly speak out about being harassed at the state capitol, and she says she saw a need for change. Both through personal experience and talking with constituents and women throughout the community about how common workplace harassment is and the need to really update our laws to make our workplaces harassment-free all over Colorado for all workers. The bill would change things for employers by limiting the use of confidentiality agreements in legal cases. Businesses could also be liable for harassment even if a person doesn't come forward internally before going to court. And the bill would change things for employees. With the gig economy that we have these days, more and more people don't have regular job in the traditional sense. That's Democratic Representative Susan Lontine of Denver, another of the measure's main sponsors. It would allow unpaid interns and independent contractors to file harassment claims like other employees. Think freelancers and Uber drivers. They don't have any way to address when they've been harmed by harassment. Lantine's bill would give employees up to two years to bring a complaint, and it would change the legal standard for harassment at work. Currently, the behavior must be severe and pervasive. The new standard would be a hostile work environment that, quote, undermines a person's sense of well-being or safety. But Lauren Furman with the Colorado Chamber of Commerce says that new definition is too broad. I think you could have a lot of claims made by workers on the job who feel as though their well-being has been undermined. So we need to narrow that language to be more specific as to what the proponents are, are trying to focus on. She takes issue with other elements of the proposed legislation, too. She says it could make companies liable for working conditions for contractors they have little control over and leave businesses vulnerable to lawsuits about behavior they're unaware of. We don't advocate for harassment in any way, and none of our members do. We want to address this, but we want to do it the right way. And we want to make sure that this bill is done correctly and it's done so it can be effective. Furman also wants penalties added if someone files a frivolous claim and warns that a poorly crafted law could leave companies drowning in bad lawsuits. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. On yesterday's show, Governor Polis talked about his proposal for a public option health plan in Colorado. And in talking about it, he did not mince words about who he sees as the opposition. 
the Colorado for-profit hospitals are the second most profitable in the country from overcharging patients. Now what they're doing is they're actually using some of the money they make from overcharging patients to actually lobby and engage in attacks against these efforts to save people money on health care. You may not have seen the ads yet or gotten any mailers, but the odds are good they're coming. Right now, a big lobbying effort is ramping up around this public option proposal. CPR public affairs reporter Andy Kenny has been delving into who's behind it and what they're saying. Hi, Andy. Hey, Avery. Andy, let's start with the who. Governor Polis says the hospitals are fighting the effort. Is that the case? Well, sort of. So what we've seen is that there are mailers, TV ads, Facebook ads coming out from a group called Partnership for America's Healthcare Future. And that's a national nonprofit that formed in 2018. Until now, they've mostly been focused on fighting Medicare for all and other federal proposals by the Democratic presidential candidates. Now they're delving into Colorado in particular, and they do have the backing of a lot of major medical and health groups. And what have you been able to learn about this group and what they're doing? So as a nonprofit, they don't have to disclose a ton of information, but we do know that they've spent at least $130,000 on Facebook and broadcast ads in Colorado, and that's according to disclosures we're able to get from Facebook itself and from the Federal Communications Commission. It's interesting uh, just how much we can't learn. Uh, They don't necessarily have to report their full spending. A lot of groups that are spending on political issues do have to say, we spent X amount on a mailer. These folks may not have to because they're they're not very specifically referring to a call to action or to an upcoming election. When it comes to donors, they really don't have to say much at all. So there's no way via these regulations that we necessarily know who all is putting up money. Yeah, that's most likely the case. They do, however, voluntarily list some of their members, this Partnership for America group. So we know a lot. We know some of the folks at the table, and that does include a handful of Colorado hospitals, Uh, Partnership for America lists in its membership HCA Healthcare, which uh, operates facilities in Colorado, including Rose Medical Center, Swedish Medical Center, and five other Denver locations. They also have the the Federation of American Hospitals on their side, and that's a bunch of investor-owned hospitals, and they collectively run something like 3,000 hospital beds here in Colorado. What do those hospitals say about the ad campaign? Well, not just those hospitals, but almost all the hospitals I contacted, whether or not they were directly involved, say, yeah, we agree. Like, (laughs) we don't know who these guys might be, so they say, but they really agree with the message. For example, when I talked to HCA, they said that the uh, idea of a public option, and this is a quote, is a proposal that does not protect patient choice or ensure access to high-quality care and would dramatically impact care for rural Coloradans, end quote. You know, that's a lot of the concerns that we hear any time that you have a major reform effort about healthcare. And I feel like we need to take a step back here for a second and actually explain the public option idea. How would it change healthcare? Well, it's interesting. It's not what you might typically think of as a public option. It's not healthcare that's provided directly by the government. And instead, it's the government kind of encouraging or even requiring that private insurers offer a very specific type of plan. And it also sets price limits for how much hospitals can charge that plan. So private insurance does not go away, but it has to play by a lot of new rules, potentially. And one big goal of those rules is to cut down on hospital costs and, therefore, hospitals' profits. And again, this is not health care provided by the government. Um, so has any other state done anything like this before? 
Indeed, Washington passed its own public option law last year. They're still working on getting that up and running. And at this point, we don't really have an example of how well or how effectively it might work in the real world. There are a lot of proposals floating around this country to change the healthcare system in even more radical ways. Why is what Colorado is considering getting so much attention from hospitals? It's interesting. Uh, Colorado is not a relatively large state, so it's not automatically like California might going to shift the world when it passes a law like this. But the thing about Colorado is it might just do this and and a lot faster than we might say see something like single-payer healthcare come online because you've got a, a lot of factors really aligning here. So here's Joe Hanel from the Colorado Health Institute, which studies healthcare reforms. Really what Polis is after is lowering costs in healthcare. And when you have a chief executive who has a pretty single-minded focus like that and a legislature that's been kind of chomping at the bit to get at this for several years, uh, big things are going to happen and you're seeing those happening in Colorado right now, probably more so than most other states. And as he put it, if Colorado does join Washington state, then hospital groups may be afraid that it sets a precedent for other states to follow. So this will be a really interesting debate to watch. Andy Kenny is part of a team covering the state legislature. He's also co-host of our politics podcast, Purplish. The first episode of the new season tracking all the goings on at the state legislature will be available tomorrow afternoon wherever you get your podcasts. The school district in Durango is considering a ban on cell phones in its middle schools. The idea is still in its early stages. A detective with the Durango Police Department and the Durango School District 9R are investigating several incidents involving students and cell phones. That's according to the school district spokesperson, Julia Pop. Some of it is sexting and sending inappropriate pictures and messages. There's also cyberbullying and concerns about inappropriate uses of Snapchat and other social media apps. These concerns led administrators from the district's two middle schools to request a ban on cell phone use. The school board took up a discussion Tuesday. If the district makes changes to cell phone use policies in its middle schools, Pop said it would likely take effect next school year. In the meantime, leadership plans to consult with other schools in the region that have already banned cell phones. That includes Mountain Middle School. I spoke with Shane Voss, who heads the Durango Charter School last fall, along with some students. What role do you think cell phone use plays in the current adolescent mental health crisis? I think it's bigger than, uh, than we think. And I, I do see that we've had an increase in anxiety levels, depression levels to a you know, very serious problem in our region with teen suicide. And I, I think there is a direct correlation with the amount of cell phone use in, in terms of social media, bullying, uh, cyberbullying, whatever you want to call it. And so what we've tried to do at our school is create a safe zone, which is, you know, the eight hours of a school day um, where students don't have to worry about that added extra pressure. And I want to talk about that safe zone. Your school has banned cell phones on campus for seven years. And I understand teachers actually brought that idea forward. What were they seeing? I think they were just seeing it was a massive distraction. And we started to see more and more students uh, with phones. And the the problem just became so overwhelming that a a lot of teachers were struggling to get students to be present, stay focused. The cell phones are off and in the backpacks before they enter our building and not out and uh, in use until they exit the building at the end of the school day. And you said that Social media and cell phones, they can create a sort of 24-hour bullying cycle. Is that right? 
I think this is where we've underestimated the problem as educators and parents uh, that our students now with heightened levels of anxiety and depression are teasing each other, picking on each other, saying things that are, you know, false or or whatever, 24 hours a day. Are parents part of the problem, the way they use their cell phones or the boundaries they do and don't set for their students? Absolutely. I, I think they, it's a learned behavior, right? And so those parameters of not, you know, using your cell phone while you're driving, uh, not using your cell phone when you're having a family dinner, being present, being focused on the person that's sitting across from you and having a, an actual conversation these are learned social behaviors, and so parents um, need to model you know, appropriate usage as well. We're getting our kids ready for the world of work, and uh, you're present, you're focused, you're not checked out, and you're not on social media when you're, when you're in a business meeting. You know, we encourage our parents, and they have a full understanding that if they have an emergency issue, they can contact our student at any time during a school day by calling the front office, and uh, we do have a phone in each classroom to get a hold of those students. The cell phone policy, it's evolved. I understand initially kids could hang on to their phones before school and that they just had to shut them off when school started. What were you seeing? You know, we let the the students into the building at 745 and the class starts at 8. And so what we saw were a lot of students sitting around in the hallways, not talking to each other, but on their phones, engaged in other types of digital talking with Snapchats and Instagram and, and, and such, but it was kind of eerie that they were all sitting next to each other but not talking to each other. And so the next year, what we decided to do is say, let's just change this, and, and they have to you know, turn the phone off, put it in their backpack before they enter the building. And now that 15-minute time as they're waiting for class, students are actually talking to each other. They're talking to teachers, and they're talking to each other, and instead of sitting and staring at a phone for 15 minutes waiting for class to start. Once you banned phones completely, did it take some kids a while to settle down and focus? I think it's it's definitely a learned behavior that took some time for some students. And, you know, there's a, a recent Stanford study. The number one skill to teach kids right now is to be indistractable. And uh, we have kids that are multitasking by trying to do homework with a phone next to them, Snapchatting, and then they got Netflix on their laptop, and they got all these the music going on, and it just doesn't work, right? So during the school day, we're trying to teach them the skill of being indistractable and focusing their energy on one thing, one conversation, one skill or concept at a time. And this does take kids uh, a lot of time and effort, especially at the middle school age, to do this. But I think this is the very core of why our school is reaching distinction accreditation ratings with our scores. Our students are learning to be indistractable and focus on the subject matter at hand. And just being kids for a day instead of you know, being checked out on their, on their phones on social media. Do you notice a difference between the atmosphere at your school and other schools that use phones? I think it's palpable. And uh, you can feel it as soon as you walk in the door that there is a different culture. It's kind of like the zombie apocalypse when you walk down some of the hallways and you have all these kids in the hallways not talking to each other, but they're on their phones talking to each other. And you also spend some of your advisory periods talking about social and emotional skills and cell phone etiquette. So it's not just the ban. There's this other component, right? A lot of education. Our advisory program is all based on social-emotional learning skills, diving deeply into the symptoms of anxiety and 
really empowering students. And we added a new class this year called Mountain Strong, where they're diving even deeper into those character strengths and and how to um, empower students. Let's bring in some students now. Henry and Grace are both in eighth grade at Mountain Middle School. During the day, do you think about your cell phone at school? Because I know the band's been in place the whole time you've been in middle school. For me, personally, when I get to school, I'm normally on it about 10 minutes before school starts and then it's off. And about for the first half an hour of school, you just, it's in the back of my mind. But once class starts, then it's just kind of out the window and I'm not really thinking about it. And then at the end of school, I'm not really focused on that because I haven't seen it or been on it for the past seven to six hours. Like towards the end of the day, I start thinking about it and thinking about like, did my mom send me a text to say where I'm going after school and, or something like that? Both teens think that while students may not want to admit it, they like what the band achieves. I feel like everybody complains about it and everybody says like, oh, I really wish I could be on my phone. But I think subconsciously everybody realized that it's good for them. Like everybody looks at it as a negative thing, but it's actually really positive for our, like our moods and our focus levels. It's also like... People who have their phones on them all day and who are, like, on their phones all day don't really get human interaction. Like, you could call texting human interaction, but it's not really. To, like, interact, you need to be face-to-face and talking. Shane, what would you say to a school leader who might be listening who's considering a cell phone ban? Yeah, my advice is get your staff on board. It can't be policed by the principal only, right? And so we're all on this together for the betterment of our students. I think it's a slippery slope to say every classroom, it's up to the teacher what they're going to do, what the policy is going to be. And I I taught in a school like that, and that didn't work because then you have the cool teacher across the hallway that allows it, and you have the teacher that's, you know, referred to as overly strict trying to enforce it in their room. So it has to be 100% consensus with your staff, and it has to be consistent. And when you look at the big picture, do you find that cell phone use and teaching students how to use cell phones appropriately is as important or maybe even more important than reading, writing, and arithmetic? I see it as being equally as important because the social skills are the skills that will kind of determine their academic achievement and future performance, right? So, and if this is what's best for kids so they can focus and be present on learning, then let's do it. If that means we're going to buy 30 Chromebooks for every classroom or whatever it takes for technology, is that so that's no longer an, an excuse for teachers to say they have to use their cell phone because we don't have any calculators or whatever, then, yeah, talk to your superintendent or your principal and say, let's let's prioritize our budget. Let's remove all the excuses because we know this is what's best for kids and we're going to have fewer kids facing depression and anxiety. The mental health piece of this is huge, and that can't be ignored. That's Shane Voss, head of Mountain Middle School, a charter school in Durango. You also heard from 8th graders Henry and Grace. We spoke in November. The district is now considering a ban on cell phones in public middle schools. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Good music and good food, well, they pair marvelously together, whether you're in the kitchen or at the table. Hi, I'm Ray White from CPR Classical, and if there's a smart speaker in your home, CPR Classical is here to help elevate your next meal, even when your hands are busy. Just tell your smart speaker to play CPR Classical, or keep up with the day's events saying, play CPR News. 
any time of day, Colorado Public Radio is at your command through your smart speaker. A Colorado author received a big award Wednesday to the tune of $100,000. Marcia Douglas is a professor of creative writing and Caribbean literature at CU Boulder. The money from the Creative Capital Award will support a new writing project called Genuine Her Story. It looks to rechart the history of African migration and displacement. Let's listen back to Douglas's 2018 conversation with my colleague Ryan Warner. They talked about her most recent novel, The Marvelous Equations of the Dread. It's been hailed for its poetry and prose that intertwines Jamaica's history of violence and the country's creative humanity. What inspired Marvelous Equations? I mean, in some ways, it's a story about Bob Marley, but it goes Mm. far beyond that. Yes. Well, the novel was inspired for the most part by Jamaican music, reggae music. And I wrote it out of what you might call a reggae aesthetic or dub aesthetic. And I was also just inspired by Kingston as a place because I grew up in Kingston. And reggae and Kingston go together. How how so? (laughs) Give us a feel for that when you're on the streets in Kingston. I don't feel that you can walk on the streets in Kingston without hearing music. And Kingston in general is just a very noisy and chaotic place. And the book tries to capture all of that. It's a very sound conscious book. And um, yeah, and so it seemed to me that if you're writing a book that uh, attempts to capture something of the spirit of Kingston, it needs to be noisy in some way. How does an author make a book noisy? <laughs> well, in my case, I wrote a noisy book by um, structuring it around what you might call sound bites. And so um, the book is divided into all of these uh, fragments, um, which you can think of as tracks. Um, It's also uh, structured around musical uh, devices such as the dub side, version, remix, that sort of thing. I also think of Jamaica as a place where colonial history uh, clashes with the people who are there. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel that very much in this book. Yes, yeah. Well, the book actually is set for the most part in Halfway Tree, which is a square in Kingston, which has a landmark, which is a Victorian clock tower. And that clock tower is actually a very strong symbol of uh, Jamaica's colonial past um, because it was built in memory of King Edward VII. So it is a place where you have past and present and all sorts of things clashing there, right there physically and symbolically in that square. How does it feel to you to be there? And I want to say that you also spent time in the UK. Yes. I was born in the UK and I grew up in Jamaica. And I um, actually spent a lot of time in Halfway Tree because I went to school in that area. And so I actually had reason to um, walk by the clock tower pretty much on a daily basis, you might say. And one thing I remember about that clock tower is that it was always in disrepair and the hands were always stuck. And so... Maybe that somehow traumatized me. I don't know. Huh. <laughs> Wait, same. <laughs> and so I came to write a, a book about why these hands might have been stuck. 
This book speaks of river mamas, mm. a sort of spiritual mermaid. You write about fierce baby mothers. Yeah. Uh, really a cast of strong female voices who move the story along. Yeah. I, I'd like you to focus perhaps on, on some of the strong women in this book. Right. Well, one of the women characters in the book is Lena. Lena is a, a Rasta woman. And there's a way in which it's her story. She begins and ends the book. And I like to think of her as emotionally owning the book. And so there are other... Lena's a fictional character. And there are other fictional, um, historical characters, rather, in the book, such as Bob Marley. However, uh, for the most part, we get characters such as Bob Marley through the lens of Lena. There's also Marcus Garvey in yes. this book. And uh, Marcus Garvey, for those who don't know the history, uh, I think was born in Jamaica, came to the United States, mm. and was incredibly influential in the civil rights movement, in pan-Africanism as mm. well, and, and this notion of returning uh, to Africa, but perhaps to Liberia, mm. and creating a nation there. Yes. And, um, but I, I want to go back to the women, though. <laughs> okay. That's a man. <laughs> so you, you say that she's the emotional sort of uh, underpinning of this book, Lena. Yes. Tell us more about her. She's also um, a love interest of Bob Marley as well. And so that narrative thread informs the book, too. I had a lot of fun with, with that thread. And uh, she is... Uh, one character of three generations of Rasta women explored in the book. There's also Sister Vaughn, who's her mother, and there's also her daughter, Angela. Well, speaking of her daughter, I'd like to have you read from the book. I think these are her daughter's words. Right. And it also speaks to the presence of water in this book. I feel yes. like there's a lot of water in this book. I guess that makes sense. Right. Island space. Sets. Yeah. You know, the Atlantic, <laughs> the Caribbean. And I, I, this also speaks, I think, to the poetry aspect of this book. It's a lovely blend of, of poetry and prose. Uh, so this is Angela, and this section is called When I Call Your Name. Mama? Mama? Can you hear me? At what speed does love travel underwater? They say there is a laughter only River Mama can hear. They say if you play a record backwards, there are words there and there are secrets in the scratchy silences between songs. There is a rhythm that loops from Hirsa all the way across centuries. Old-time people heard it, layered under night rain. If a sound is an echo, is it still real? Copies of copies of sound? And if you find my voice in a fissure in your sleep, will it be less real? Remember the baby mothers who were forced to jump off the ships? Sometimes I hear their children calling, Mama! Here's what I know. When I call your name, my voice is their echo. I think that speaks as well to the noise that you wanted in this book, how yes. much it is about sound. Are the ships that you describe there, are those slave ships? Those are slave ships. Yeah. Right. And so Angela is remembering, you know, those baby mothers who jumped um, off the ships. 
let's talk briefly about Rastafarianism and its place in this book. And I'd like to know what you hope readers who may not be familiar with the Rastafari, what they might get out of this. I tend to see uh, Rastafari as being one of the more uh, progressive aspects of Jamaican culture. Rasta is a community of free thinkers and trailblazers, and it's also a community of innovators as well. And uh, that community has made much contributions to Jamaica in terms of arts and culture and also uh, black consciousness as well. And there's a way in which uh, the movement in some ways has been um, ahead of the rest of Jamaica in in many ways, politically anyway. Um, So that's one thing that I would hope readers might glean from the book about Rastafari. Having said that, the, the, the novel does not mean to idealize the movement either. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Author and professor Marcia Douglas speaking with Ryan Warner in 2018. This week, Douglas received a $100,000 Creative Capital Award to work on her new writing project called Genuine Herstory. Finally, Martin Luther King Jr.'s love of jazz and its embodiment of the civil rights movement inspired the 2017 album from Denver cornetist Ron Miles called I Am a Man. In 1968, Dr. King traveled to Memphis to support striking African-American sanitation workers. It was on that visit that he was killed. Ron Miles was four then, but he remembers watching King's funeral on TV. He's never forgotten the images of the workers and their signs proclaiming their essential humanity. I am a man. I feel in this time, particularly this political climate now, where there seems to be a move to diminish another's humanity and a kind of cynicism about that. And I think we have to do everything we can to go out there and and recognize and respect each other and, and start from that common place. Denver cornetist Ron Miles with a musical tribute to Martin Luther King Jr. Monday is MLK Day. Thank you for joining us on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.